Welcome to the SAC Shining Lights SLP Schools podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Archibald from Western University. As you know, many speech language pathologists in Canada are employed in schools. Their job is to support children with communication disabilities in accessing the curriculum and achieving their academic and personal potential. It's a challenging job. So many schools, so many students, and not many SLPs. Across the country, SLPs are finding unique solutions to providing the best possible services to the students and school teams with whom they work. In this podcast, our guests describe their innovations in school-based speech-language pathology. Thanks for listening as we shine a light on some brilliant projects. All right, welcome everyone to another episode of the SAC Shining Lights SLP Schools podcast. I'm thrilled today to have Sandrine Umanoza join us on the podcast. Sandrine, would you please introduce yourself? Hi, thank you for the invitation, Lisa, and I'm thrilled to be here today. So I am Sandra Numunoza. I am a speech therapist. I live um, on unceded territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabe uh, First Nations in Gatineau, Quebec, uh, just at the border of Ottawa. Um, and um, I've been uh, practicing speech therapy since 2011. I'm an Ottawa U grad. Um, and I am currently today the owner of, um, the cabinet d'orthophonie Vol, which is a private practice clinic in Gatineau. Thank you. Thanks very much. So Sandrine, can you tell us about your work context and your work in schools? Speech therapy, I have done it in, um, in Montreal. Um, I've also worked in rehab center, but something that happened to me, um, out of the blue, which was really interesting, was that in 2013, I was contacted by the Chakepesh Institute, Institut Chakepesh, which is based in Settle, Quebec, on the North Shore. So that's just right under the Labrador area. So the, the, the far east of Quebec, um, up the St. Lawrence River. Um, so I was contacted through um, another clinic I was working with at the time um, to offer services in First Nations. Innu, so the Innu First Nation community of, um, at that time, it was the first time I was going to Nutaquan, which is close to Natashquan. And that's how, um, since 2013 up till today, I've been now working with um, up to six different communities through the Chikapish Institute, um, offering services in schools. Wow. So that's so, so exciting. So can you tell us about how that, that service delivery is set up? Just generally, you know, what mm-hmm. are your resources, how often you go, you know, where you have to get to, that kind of thing. So over time, that has changed quite a lot. And we'll go into it um, a bit more um, while we continue discussing um, on this topic. But um, it first started, uh, so in 2013, the, the delivery service was very simple, was um, once a year, I was asked and tasked to go into one of the six different communities. So once a year only for one week and to do six assessments. That was it. No matter how big the school was, um, no matter how many kids, um, how many students were in the school. So I had small schools with a total of 76 children um, from kindergarten to high school, whereas I had others with 100, 200 children. So um, that was a service delivery and it was a fly-in, fly-out uh, delivery model. So I would f- fly from 
Gatineau all the way to the North Shore of Quebec, which is at the opposite side of the province, completely opposite. And I would be there for a week, do the assessment, see the six students that were assigned to me. I, I didn't know them. They were just assigned to me by the school personnel. Um, I would come back home and then I would write the reports. And then we would do the, um, we would give out the results of the reports through virtual means. So through teletherapy, for example. Right. Um, yeah. Wow. Wow. So uh, what then in, in that context, you know, where you started, then what were some of the major challenges that uh, you were noticing and that, uh, you know, spurring you on to think more about where you were going? But talk about the major challenges that you saw first. So the first challenge was that I had no idea what was going on after I was after I gave the results. I had no idea what repercussions uh, my assessments would have on the students, on the students' um, academic achievements, on the parents, on the families as well. Um, I did know there were no SLT close by in most of the uh, communities that I would go to. And another challenge was really that I was really wondering why was I assessing these children of a different culture? Yes, but also learned Inu as the main language at home or outside of home as well um, in their community with tests that were mostly French and also tested on monolingual French Quebec children often or French from France uh, children mm -hmm. as well. So those were the two more most puzzling um, and challenging things that I had to face regarding my practice. Yeah. So at that time, uh, Sandrine, were you approaching those assessments from, you know, a, a from a that was in a similar way to what you had done with other schools? Like you, like you mentioned, your standardized tests, your French language tests, is was yep. was that the, as and would they have looked somewhat similar to what you'd done with other school children? One hundred percent. I yeah. had no guidance. I was going. It was trial and error for the first couple of years. One hundred percent. Um, I I just had this nagging feeling that something was wrong, and especially that on my end, maybe some some of you might have heard with my last name. Um, I am from immigrant descent. Um, I am also a child from the immigration. My parents are from Rwanda in Africa. Um. And, um, you know, we are exposed to many languages as well. Um, and I knew that something was not adding up. Um, I knew they were asking me questions about little things that had to do with just the pictures I was showing them that for them didn't make any sense because it, where they lived, they didn't see the same type of um, either activities or even environments that were on my pictures that I was showing them in the books and the, and the tests that I were using. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. And so in that context, you've been at it for a few years now. How did it all, you know, how did you begin to to figure out what, how you would make changes or address those challenges? Um, so at first I started by just asking questions. Um, when I would meet with parents, I would really take a moment because because it was so easy for me to not meet the parents because the schools gave me the names. I came in, sometimes even the consent forms were already signed. Right. So in theory, I don't have to meet the parents. I try. And due to so many different obstacles, some parents weren't able to make it. Um, things like they have an appointment, a medical appointment. So they were out of the community because for medical appointments, you do have to take the plane mm -hmm. out of the city to a major city where there's a hospital, for example. So, so many different ways that there were so many different ways for me to be able to not meet the parents. So I started by saying, I have to make a point of meeting the parents 
no matter what. And, and, and that was more of a priority than finishing my test batteries. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was one way that I started trying to understand a bit more how what I was presenting might not might actually clash and how I could actually think of doing it a different way. Um, and also being more interested in doing a lot of research on the culture on my own, doing a lot of research on the language as well, uh, because I'm fortunate enough that there had been some linguists who did um, a lot of work on the linguistics of that language, the Innu language that they do speak. So a lot of research as well on my end um, to mm-hmm. be able to try to think differently about how to do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And lately, the main thing, the main thing that we've been trying to do um, is dynamic assessments as well as working with language assistance mm-hmm. from the communities. So let me just uh, a little bit more focus on, on where you were at. So in terms of the information uh, that you were getting from the school, did you, did you ever get a sense of how the choice for those six kids was being made? The context of the schools, because they were in remote areas, so they are still today in remote areas, make it so the teachers and the principals and the resource teachers um, often felt quite isolated, um, which created a, an alarm. Things weren't going the right way for children or, mm. or they were they were having a, a lot of challenges in school. So one of the things that I realized is that often the way that they approached it was that this child is not able to function in class so we'll send him to the speech therapist but not only did I have the referral for that child the psychologist had it so that Mm -hmm. child was over assessed Mm -hmm. not only once but the next year I would sometimes get the same name and then after the third year when I would see the same name of the same student I would ask why did you refer them to me again then tell me but he's still not functioning in class and I tell them but what has been done in between my visits and between my yearly visits and often rollover of personnel um, lack of resources lack of of human resources made it so difficult to be able to provide services in between my assessments right and so when you met okay so can I just ask then so they were kids who were we're having multiple difficulties with learning, I guess. Uh, yes. yes. And so presumably there were lots of other kids who, who may have had speech and language issues that you, you weren't getting as referred or, or seeing at all. Presumably. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also the fact that due to um, Inu being a, a language that was quite spoken in the community, um, but the school being in French, so the schools that I work with, they have uh, pre-K and kindergarten in Inu. And then from first grade on, it ch- switches to French right away. Mm. That's a big, big shock for a lot of the, of the students. It is not undoable. We all know that multilingualism is, is, and bilingualism is absolutely doable. However, in school settings, there are things that need to be done to make sure and to ensure that the second language is learned as easily and and as proficiently as possible mm-hmm. um so that that bump in the road which was the fact that there was kind of no bridge over from kindergarten to first grade made mm-hmm. it quite difficult for a lot of children so in theory what happened to answer your question is that they did send me often the same children the ones that were less functioning but when I would sit down with the teachers to ask them what is that student doing that's so different from the rest of your students they would tell me oh no 
that we all can't do this. They right. all can't understand this. They all can't, they don't, they all don't have the vocabulary, quote unquote, that we expect, but that one is less functioning. It doesn't see. function as much right. as well. Right. And when you met with those parents, did they have concerns or did they, were they, they signed the form because the, the, the school recommended it or, you know, what were those conversations like? Yes, they signed the forms because the school recommended them mm-hmm. um, because it is something that they want for oh, every parent wants their child to succeed and mm-hmm. to feel that they're able to succeed in a school setting. Mm-hmm. However, they didn't really understand what they were signing all the time in terms of the different professions. Mm-hmm. The, the, when I would explain why I'm here, that what language and communication, what I'm trying to assess, um, they would agree with learning that learning might be difficult. Of course, they would agree with that. But when I would talk about the language part in terms of in Inu, how is it in their mother tongue? Um, they weren't that concerned. All right. Well, so can we t- talk about now your journey then? So, you know, what the, the learning that you undertook, you talked about, you, you know, your need to learn more and how you began to shape the service uh, from from where you started. Um, I had to do a lot of digging. Um, I learned about the culture. I learned about the language. Um, I've also spent time um, learning about the communities that I would go in um that I would visit. So those communities all had very, very different um realities. Uh they were all a lot of them were quite remote, some more than others. Um, but it was really different realities. So taking time to participate when I was invited to some of the events around. Um, that was also a form of learning. And then learning to meet people um and and to to create those bonds of when I would come back more and more that I would be able to have people that can tell me, you know, know that I'm coming back and could also be a key person for me to, to ask if I had questions about what's going on in the community, because I realized that my work as speech therapy in the school could be affected by what's going on outside in the community as well. Mm -hmm. If there were big other crises, other crises that were more important, maybe my speech therapy, maybe it was a good moment to contact the parents, for example. Mm -hmm. So I, that was part of the research that I did. Um, Sorry, Sandrine, before you go on from that, who, who did you get those, that information from? Like, do you read that stuff or do, is there as as someone that you can contact? I mean, how do you find that, that information? Um, the information, I think some of the main things that I had to read for me were, um, at least, uh, the truth and reconciliation report, um, commission report, um, that's for me from the National Center for Truth and Re- Reconciliation. I think for me, that was one of the first, first things to read because we don't have enough knowledge about what is, what are the reality, uh, different realities that um, Indigenous and First Nations people and, and Inuit and Métis people are, are living through. That would be one that I definitely had to read. Mm-hmm. Another tool that helped me a lot was a report by the National Collaborating Center for Aboriginal Health. And that's um, that was written by Alison Gerlach. And I'm sorry, I am not sure about the pronunciation of her last name. Um, and it's titled Exploring Socially Responsive Approaches to Children's Rehabilitation with Indigenous Communities, Families, and Children, um, which we will share with uh, the audience afterwards, mm-hmm. um, which talked about really us in, in our profession, so speech therapists, uh, occupational therapists, physios, and 
and it was really written by um, a committee of on Aboriginal health. So it's really their perspective. And there's a kind of a dialogue going on about rehab in Indigenous, really, um, Indigenous communities. So those were really two important um, documents for me to read. Mm. But also, um, interestingly enough, um, something happened uh, during since 2013, um, actually about a couple years ago. Um, we had, as we all know, in 2020, we had the unfortunate event with in in the states actually with uh, George Floyd mm-hmm. and in the midst of me working in first nations community and with my background as a black um as a black woman in speech therapy um this really came in and moved me and I think it moved the whole world, mm. but it also moved other of my colleagues in Quebec. So other of my colleagues in speech therapy and audiology, we, we kind of got together in July, 2020 um, to create a group that wanted to examine, I would say um, the impacts of systemic racism in this, in the fields of speech language pathology and audiology in Quebec. Mm. We realized there were no such report um, and no such analysis or no no documentation to talk about how, as a whole, our field can become anti-racist, mm-hmm. you know, just not, not only not be racist, but also become anti-racist. And so first we had to talk about, well, how do we contribute to systemic racism in our field because it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with our own position personally it has to do with the structures and the systems that are in place in the health and education fields that can affect in this case racialized people including indigenous people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. interesting so all of that was was changing your own approach to practice and your own thinking um and probably in you know, leading you, informing the way to approach conversations with those that you were working with in that community, in those communities. So can you tell me about those conversations? So who were the people that you were able to connect with in the communities themselves? So in the communities, um, I was able to connect with um, people, and, and it would really differ from a community to another, but people who either worked with children, worked in the health uh, field health centers or or at the school um, just through like I said just talking to parents and telling them and and being quite honest about the fact that I would love to have someone to whom I can with whom I can work with that speak Inu that understand the Inu culture so that I could co-construct my vision of speech therapy with them in the for that community and just by saying that kind of kind of just talking about it and and just discussing and kind of sharing my 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 unease at certain things and in my reflections i would be approached by people or be um actually directed towards people who told me i would be interested to work with you and when they would tell me this we would simply go to the principal and tell them that it would be great if i could work um with that person to help me every time i come and um visit not only for my assessments, but I also started um, increasing the amount of visits that I would do per year, staying longer periods of time, two to three weeks even sometimes. And I could start not only training that person, that 
often it were it was Innu ladies. Um, so those ladies, um, those women, uh, those mothers, sometimes they were grandmothers as well, to to about what language and communication with was for me, and then them telling me what it meant for them, mm. and then constructing together what how can I assess children with that vision and how can we also offer services while I'm away? Because I did realize that I'm, I don't live there. I need mm-hmm. someone who lives there and I needed to find key people. And that's really through conversations and through um, really sharing with the school team, with the parents, with the people that I knew in the community through my visits that I was able to find those, uh, those people who became language assistants for most of the, for most of them. It's, it's as I'm listening to you there, Sandrine. It's making me feel like um, you know, that you needed to seek that out. Um, did the do you think the community expected to to need to train you? Do you know I mean, or do you think it was you needing to come in and say, "No, this is what I'm going to need to be effective here"? Can... I don't think so, and um, I think actually I surprised quite a few of um, of those people that I worked with. Um, I remember this one time. Um, um, funny anecdote. I was working with, um, with a child and then I had, um, this Innu woman who was with me, um, as a language assistant. And I was actually, you know, what we do in, in our field, we do vocabulary and we language and we bombard them with vocabulary and we're so intense and we, we stimulation. This is what stimulation is. That's how we learn it. This is, this is how we do it. And, at the end of the session, I, I asked her, so tell me, what, what are you thinking? Tell me what's the first thing that's coming to your mind right now. And she told me, you're too intense. You overstimulate the, ch- the child. You overstimulated the child. And I was like, oh, really? That's interesting because you know what? That's the only way I know how to do. So you know what? With you, we'll find a way to, to work it out and to find a way where it, that it comes close to something that's more natural for the child mm. and for you because you're the one who's going to have to do it while I'm gone and so so what do you think and she told me me and I said yeah you I, I need you because I cannot I cannot know how else to do it because I've learned it one way mm. and that's only one vision of what communication should be yes super interesting yeah. Uh, and that inviting that feedback and perspective yeah, and making that and, I, you know, you're you're using that co-constructing of the vision. I really like, the, you know, that the, the words you're using there. I'm wondering about whether there was a, you know, the, your co-construction, did it look different in every community? Did you have a sense of, you know, what, why it might look in one way in one community or another? Could you could you talk about some some differences, maybe? One hundred percent. Yes. So the if ever you take a map and you look at where the north shore of Quebec is you'll see that that area is quite large quite big um which is quote nord in french um and the the different villages and communities i was going into i was visiting had very different reality in terms of language as well for example the one that were closer to the south closer to big cities um like I'll I'll have to, to to kind of stop here and just remind people for those who don't know that indigenous languages are critically on the verge of disappearing. Mm. Okay, in Canada, so the Inu language is not um, is also um, on the verge of disappearing or 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 critically diminishing in terms of the amount of speakers. So that's 
what I want to say first. So because of that, what we see is that the, the more south the villages were and the communities were, the less children were speaking the language. Mm-hmm. There was more of a French um, use that was happening so they could understand, but they would use it less. And more I would go, the more remote I was and the more north I was, the more the sp- the children would speak it. So I always had the questions of on bilingualism. What do we do? The child is not repeating, is, is talking to me in French. What do I do if I'm speaking Inu? Because I would tell them for, for me, I want to help revitalize the language. I want to be a helper in this. I don't want to be impeding this. Mm-hmm. So yes, French is going to be taught in school, but I would remind them that I'm here to help, to make sure that the language of their hearts, the language of their communities, the language of in which they share every, every moment with their children, with their community, that that's, I'm going to try to reinforce it. So of course, that what happened with the language assistance is that some of them would feel a bit confused about it, where others would feel quite easy, mm-hmm. uh, felt quite, it felt like it was quite easy for them to do it in Inu, to do the sessions in Inu. And a lot of them would tend to go to French tell me I should go into French because the parents are going to ask me, why am I speaking in Inu? And I had to validate without forcing that whatever language in your heart you think is important for that child and for their identity and culture, you speak that language. Mm -hmm. And that's all I would say and let it rest. And eventually they would come and tell me, you know what, you were right. I think speaking Inu for me was, was hard at first because of the ideas they have about what school should be school should be in the French language not in the Inu language and I was trying to kind of deconstruct that idea and Mm -hmm. reconstruct something new for them so that they could be the voice in their communities about how important Inu is even in the school yes yes you admit you started off much earlier about those those system-wide factors right you know that that's leading to these ideas that are then hard to break down uh, you know uh, yeah really for sure. Yeah. Well, so you've used the term language assistance and uh, tell me about where that work has gone with those language assistants. Yeah. What does that look like now? So right now, um, obviously COVID, COVID help, didn't help, <laughs> but um, before COVID, I had about two language assistants for school mostly, which was quite a great um a great feat, I would say. Um, and um, now we're about at one language, one language assistant for school. COVID happened and, you know, everything is is always is always harder after COVID. Mm-hmm. However, to have at least one in each school who's who, who knows what they're doing, who's who's had who's been paired with either one person in my team, one of the um, uh, speech therapists in my team to make sure that we are always there to answer their questions and and weekly or bi-weekly we always have remote sessions and then about three to four times a year minimum we go and visit and and give them one-on-one um uh a coaching or or we accompany them or sometimes they coach us on something new um has been really um the highlights i would say of the last couple of the last three years um and that was really done through having um the confidence of the principals mm-hmm. um who i they've seen me for so long they they would know that i would come back every time so i i, I kind of had i think i had the conf- the, the 
the, this trust mm-hmm. of the principals in the schools. And that helped me kind of create those new projects and the, those new positions in the schools with the principals. And they would talk to each other. The schools, even though they're, they're different communities, they would talk to each other. Hey, I have this, I have this. And eventually they would feel, oh, I'm interested. How come we don't have this? Can we have this? And, and this is really how, um, the snowball effect happened. And, and I'm quite, quite happy and quite proud and quite, um, humbled by um, the work we do with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that trust and the, you know, that, that they can count on you to be coming back and having that continuity must make such a huge contribution there. So mm-hmm. what does it look like now? You, before you would go up and if you went on a visit, you have six referrals, you know, how, how does, how do kids come to you now? What, you know, how many kids in the schools are you seeing? You know, what, what does it look like? So from those observations, I was able to talk with the Chakapesh Institute and we really had this open dialogue about how things were done. And sometimes they're just done because they're just done that way, but through dialogue and through um, talking with the principals as well and, this, and the school teams, um, now there's more of a ratio per how many children and how many students are in the school in terms of the amount of assessments. So that's, that's the first thing that changed. So it wouldn't be six everywhere. Some could have 12, some could have 18, some could would have six, which is also why with my in my clinic I have a team of speech therapists that do help me um, because it becomes it can become quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, not only uh, assessments are important; they are important in a certain in a certain sense, as we know to to be able to decide what goals and objectives we're going to work on. But we were really worried about what is being done. So. While the language assistance system was being put in place, we've also started visiting uh, in schools in the um, RTI model of um, response to intervention model in schools that we're trying to put in place. So we were trying to make sure that we would enforce the base in the schools, in the classrooms. Mm-hmm. So what we really did is to, as as we would come over um, on a regular basis, some teachers would start knowing us. They would start calling us, calling upon us to to offer them ideas of how to teach differently in a context of second language, mm-hmm. um, or in a context of plural of multilingualism. And that's how we started doing activities in classrooms and bringing very general and universal ways of teaching or helping the teachers teach in a way that corresponds to what the language levels of the children which is told which is 100% normal for them to have and not see it as deficient or seeing mm-hmm. as a language impediment but seeing it as a reality with which we have to learn to 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 live with and to to teach in um and to make sure that there's that our 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 profession our skills our knowledge as speech therapists is also um can also translate in the classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the main things. And a lot of the, of the teachers are non-Indigenous. So mm-hmm. that was also why it was quite challenging for them when the children came from kindergarten and first grade, second grade, and they're learning French at the same time as learning to read and write. So mm-hmm. that was quite challenging for them. Mm-hmm. So the, mo- the service model has changed quite a lot in the sense that the response to intervention is really something that has started as well. Right. And um, and the language assistants have been also helping by going into classrooms and sometimes also doing some activities in the classrooms as well. Have you been able to use some of that you were mentioning before about the need to sort of bridge from Inu preschool to French uh, grade one? Have you been able to to get some of that bridging activities going on to support that change? 
Yes. So through the language assistance, through um, training, training, uh, well, I would say training, I would say um, also giving workshops on bilingualism and multilingualism and and, and kind of helping um, foster the idea of it's important to, if we have Inu teachers, it's important to have them in grade one and two to make sure that the, the transition is as smooth as possible. So mm-hmm. that's when it's possible that we have no control over that, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last uh, project that we started is um, working on translanguaging. So we have two schools with whom we are starting working on translanguaging, um, which the moment we do not have, an, the moment the teacher is not Indigenous, the first grade in which the teacher is not Indigenous. So we have a school in which we have Indigenous teachers up to grade two. So we started in grade three, um, having the Inu language teacher co-teach with the teacher in grade three, some aspects of grammar, for example, or Mm. literature, literacy, right? So really going into kind of explicit learning from the minority language to understand the majority language mm-hmm. in the classrooms as well. So that's one of the, 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 the new projects that's also starting. And, and so this plural plurality in the language, so that, that's translanguaging. Just tell me about that, that term. What, how, what do you, what does that term mean? Translanguaging. So translanguaging is a, is an approach that, um, has been around. If you, if you look, if you do research in, um, scientific literature, you will find a lot of writing on it. Um, but lately it has taken, um, it has taken a bit more of a, of a pool, I would say, in, in, in our field, um, and education field as well. Um, the idea behind it is that we, if there is a majority and a minority language, and the children who are from the minority, the minoritized, I would say, language and the community should be able to continue using their own language, their mother tongue, to create that bridge between the new concepts that they're learning in the majority language, which mm-hmm. in our case is French. Mm-hmm. So it's about continuing to foster and understand and and go into the meta meta metacognitive skills of the children to understand what they're learning in the majority language or the the, the main the mainstream language that in which they're uh, educated. So it's allowing a bit of code switching in classes. It's mm-hmm. allowing um, some activities to 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 show the differences between the languages and sometimes mm-hmm. the similarities between the languages, but explicitly telling them that both languages are valid in school both languages are also um good to hear or good to use and are and and validating that is really really important because the moment we do an activity even if it's just creating sentences with um with different um visuals the moment we do it we did it in the inu language when we did our first trials in classrooms you could see the children who would understand all of a sudden what they were doing when they were writing sentences in French, Mm -hmm. which didn't understand at first what they were doing. They thought they were just copying. Um, But now they understood that they were actually writing a a sentence, for example, that meant something. Yeah. Oh, I just, just love that, Sandrine. Uh, That's just wonderful to hear. Tell me now about your more direct work with the language assistance with, within your sort of maybe to your tier two, or, you know, you talked about dynamic assessment, but you just mentioned it briefly. You know, how do you 
set up those assessments, get some intervention happening. You mentioned, you know, perhaps weekly follow up in, in connections when you're when you're at uh, in your office. You know, how does that look for that level of service? So there is um, now in terms of the students who are chosen, what happens because we do interventions in classrooms, we often know the, the children by name. We often know the students by name. And if if the now that we've been there for now, it's been almost 10 years now, my yeah. 10th year of, of practice in, the, in these communities. So they know how to solicitate us to validate the list if ever they're not sure. So already there, there's something that's really interesting and, and really um, that that's more meaningful in terms of the assessments that we have to do. Mm-hmm. And we also um, try to, to bring forth the idea that sometimes we might need not to assess yet if the child has not received any simulation in the Inu language first. Mm. Um, so really response to intervention, even in speech therapy. So really looking at the response to the intervention before doing the full assessment, which comes into one of the strands of dynamic assessment, um, is something that we're going to also try to, to, to encourage mm-hmm. as well. So that's when um, our language assistants are... Um, solicited because what we'll do is if we have a child um, who has issues is who has issues with language according to or or, or learning according to um, our school teams we might at first do one or two activities with our language assistants and ask them how do they feel that they communicate so they're telling us how did how did how is the communication is the child and we're really using very contextual and meaningful ways of asking that question right we're not asking them about morphemes and whatnot right we're not going into our speech therapy um jargon we're really keeping it quite functional um is he able to ask questions is he able to find his words is he able to communicate um when he's frustrated when he's in emotional states um and then when we have the parents we ask the same questions before we go for the full assessment um, later on. So what we do now is the first time of the year, even though we do have the list of, ch- of children or students to be assessed, we do not necessarily jump on the assessment right away. Mm-hmm. We first make sure that it ha- he, he or she, the child, um, where they have been seen or heard or, or, or worked, have, they have worked with someone who, also is and speak Inu and is from the Inu language mm-hmm. and that we also have the kind of confirmation from the parents that they are also worried about mm-hmm. everything and then that's when we'll um, go on and offer simulation in certain cases to do the assessment or come back later on to do dynamic assessments um, on more than one visit. When you say offer simulation, are you saying there, Sandy? Language simulation. So stimulation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yes, language simulation from your language assistants. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they, I guess, if you've been working with them for a while, those conversations so, must make them, you know, really quite knowledgeable about what they're seeing you know, when they're looking yes. at cross kids and. So nowadays they're able to tell us um, as they do, as we come and visit, they'll be able to tell us, oh, there's this child and this child that I've seen in this classroom that I'm really worried about. Mm-hmm. So now it's way more meaningful as well to hear them 
bring us the children that they're worried about and comparing them to the ones that the teachers are worried about because sometimes they match, sometimes they don't. And then we have really interesting conversations about, again, what language is and our role and communication and, and what kind of interventions, class-based interventions versus um, tier two interventions, right? Mm-hmm. So um, before getting into um, more specialized interventions, um, we do um, also make sure that from time to time, when we come and visit, let's say um, our language simulation um, assistant, so our language assistant is with, has this role sort of children that they're, they're following, we will sit down, we will sit in um, also and just kind of take notes um, as we get used to hearing the language also pay attention sometimes record and go over oh I I'm not sure about the sentence tell me what you heard and kind of deconstructing exactly what, what kind of sentence was said or what they understood and whatnot so that they're all also always giving given feedback and we also take time to also to look at new material um, we're in there in person as well mm-hmm. um, and as we leave and when we're gone and when we're back in our office depending on each person is very and, and they have you know different personalities and also different experiences prior to become language assistants and also you know different personal characteristics that make it that some we follow every week um every week we have a a, a virtual session with them in which we just go over the list of children and, and students that they're seeing or whether they've been doing or doing a, a therapy with them but virtually um and though and others that are we see every month and others that it's on call they they, they call us they simply mm-hmm. call us when they're they they need to see us so it really depends each each language assistant it really depends mm-hmm. and the, so then the language stimulation is your is your therapy and that might look like in different ways that might look like what what, what would the what would that look like <laughs> a lot of play with mostly with a lot of objects um with a lot of 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 manipulative toys um we will focus you know we will focus on the younger children to make sure that obviously we we you know that the, the whole concept is is well known in speech therapy um and um and then the use of some um some games that either we make that are made sometimes by the school um the, the sometimes the the language uh assistant she has an idea for a game and she will make it herself mm-hmm. she will make a, a bingo but with animals that are more meaningful for her and for the children and for her community um and sometimes it's going to be some games also that we bring that we can find a way we will choose some elements that make more sense um for the child from the game mm-hmm. so it, it i would i would say that if we'd be a little bird coming to see a session by our language assistant, it would look like a regular, like a, like a therapy session that right. we would do. Yeah. Yeah. So some of them would be general vocabulary building, maybe length of utterance building, and some you might be able to drill down onto some, you know, design a game that's actually got some more specific linguistic targets uh, as a part of that, that, that range that we see yeah. Yeah, in the work that we do. Yeah, and 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 however, there is some things that uh, the Inu language, um, it's it really stays quite story and descriptive based. Mm-hmm. So going into the uh, the knickknacks of certain things might not always be of certain um, morphemes or 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 language components might not be adequate all the time. Mm-hmm. So 
because I want to work, for example, on the question who, understanding the question who, it might be that we work in a way where the who question is targeted, but we also work on the other questions because it might be too to fabricate it mm-hmm. um, for that language uh, assistant to just do the question who it might, she might have, well, this is not, she might not feel comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So that's when we might create something that's a bit more natural, more mm-hmm. something that looks more like contextually based. Um, and these are things that we're still kind of working out and still learning as we go, um, mm-hmm. as we get feedback, obviously. But I would say that communication um, the communication goals and the language goals are often uh, put into more natural play-based settings, mm-hmm. more so than what we see sometimes that are very um, structured, structured mm-hmm. and goal-oriented setting, um, very very specific goal-oriented settings. Mm-hmm. But in which we do inc- we do ask the language assistant to pay attention to certain things, and and if not, we pay attention to it when we come and see the session. Yes. Yes. So we're going to start to wind up now with Sandrine. Uh, what's next for you guys in your service uh, provision there? Well, what are your next goals? Well, um, we would like to be able to, to, to continue working with the language uh, assistants. And one of the next goals that we've worked, that we're working on with uh, the Czech Fish Institute who contract us for the different communities um, is to um get the language assistants to actually meet, um, to actually be able to share on their different experiences because we think it's rich. We think that's something that's a bit lacking and it's hard to do because of the remote locations, Mm -hmm. but to kind of always have that intentionality of, you know, there is something that can be constructed. Um, Yes, through us sharing with them, but also through them sharing amongst each other their different experiences and the different um, ideas and, and, and practices that they each have according Mm -hmm. to um their different realities um so that would be one of the 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 next steps that would be really important for us that sounds really exciting you know Mm -hmm. i think so i think i think and we and they've been asking for it as well they've been asking us oh what what does she do in her community and in her school so um it's really really i think it's really interesting um it's going to be really interesting when it happens Mm -hmm. so we're working on that project we're also working on continuing um, res- response to intervention uh, model in the school to, to, to encourage it due to the high rollover of teachers sometimes and, and COVID and the remote location. It's, it's, it's not easy. Um, however, you know, every little bit counts. So that's definitely something that we're going to continue pushing. We're trying to work on assessments that aren't done on the first time we see the child and do the visit, but assessments that are because we know the child that we've seen the child in their environment, whether at school and at home. So we're trying to reduce the amount of just ha- lists of, of child that need to be assessed because tier one is so good and tier two is being addressed yeah. that we have less and less references. And that's happening. It, mm-hmm. it is happening. And we're quite happy to see that we ha- don't have, oh, um, you know, half the classroom that could be assessed but they you know that that there's an, a better understanding also of what can be done in the in a in a context of language based um of uh bilingualism and, and multilingualism contexts um yeah. indigenous communities and i would say that another project that we have um is also working on land-based pedagogy um and also helping them to work on 
learning, but by using the territory and going outside, doing speech therapy outside um, and kind of working with key people who know their land, who can accompany the teachers and the classes outside. Mm -hmm. We go with them and we use that on when we come back to do our tier one in classrooms Mm -hmm. with the teachers to show them how to use that. So that's one of the um, other projects we're working on right now. I, you know, when you were describing about uh, the, the model that I was reflecting on what you, where you started, your, your six kids that you didn't know at all and you arrived to assess. And now, uh, you know, how you're getting to know those children really over an extended dynamic period, right? Before you're, you know, getting into those, those more detailed assessments. Well, Sandrine, what, what an amazing journey you're on, uh, with developing that work and, and those relationships. So, yeah, it's really exciting. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, well, can you give us a top tip for, for the kind of work that you're doing? Oh my goodness. I would say patience, conversations with a lot of silences. You know, we, we, we talk a lot in, in our uh, Western society, you know, culture. So I've learned to have really moments of where I pause and where I just wait. And I have beautiful things that come out when I'm, especially when I'm speaking with um, people from the community and parents and families. Um, Please learn. Don't just ask, but go and read. There are so many, so many good tools out there, which we'll share obviously um, to all the audiences, at, at least my top five. Don't be afraid to question what we do. Let's not be afraid to question how and where the model, the delivery model we learn in school comes from, because it comes from our westernized view, but it is not the only view that exists. It doesn't mean that all we've learned is is not necessary or no, it's still important, but we can learn to co-construct with other communities what speech therapy can be and what communication is. Well, Sandrine, uh, so well said. Thank you. It's a gift. Uh, you know, love, loved hearing all your conversation and all that you've accomplished. I love that patience and the silence piece. You know, it's such such great advice there. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you for joining me today, Sandrine. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SAC Shining Lights SLP Schools podcast. You can find all podcasts, transcripts, and links to the episode resources on the SAC website. That's at sac-oac.ca. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast or you'd like to suggest a guest, please email the host, Lisa Archibald, at larchiba at uwo.ca. That's L-A-R-C-H-I-B-A at uwo.ca. You can listen to our podcast on all of the major podcast servers. If you liked this episode, be sure to give it a thumbs up on your platform and share it through your social media and other channels.